0: We are taking a break from the, the book of Acts that we have been studying together, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We are studying the book of Acts, and uh, we're just going to take a break from that during this season as we celebrate the work of Christ on the cross and His resurrection from the grave on Easter morning. We're studying a series called the atonement, at one meant, being at one, where there was once separation, there is now harmony, that atonement means. As I said this before, you can look at the work of Christ, you can observe with your eyes, all that Christ suffered, the anguish, the beatings, the flogging, the crucifixion, and not really know what happened on that day. What is the interpretation of the cross? That's where atonement comes in. The atonement is what God did when in Christ, on the cross, he took our place, bore our sin, and paid the penalty for it. We said that there are many facets, many ways to, to look at the, the atonement, like a diamond, like, a, like a, a looking at it from different angles. And we are looking at eight different ways um, to look at the atonement. Uh, it's a five-part series. We're looking at eight different ways to look at the sermon so far we have said that the atonement presupposes relationships. That's really important that you get that. That God has created us. He's a personal God creating us personal beings to love, worship, serve, obey, and have an intimate relationship with our creator. One of the terms in the Bible that's used for this relationship is the word covenant, a solemn and binding relationship. But, but because of sin, sin uh, which is said to be a violation of the covenant, uh, always separates and has caused separation between God and us. John calls sin lawlessness. It's, it's a breaking of the covenant of God. Romans five twelve says it's clear. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man is Adam, and death then through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We said that sin is not just breaking the moral core, uh, the moral laws of God. Don't steal and don't you know, uh, don't lie, don't steal. But it also breaks the heart of God. It's personal. And at its root, sin is idolatry. It's even making good things into the ultimate things. It is not just breaking the 6th, the, the, the 7th, and 8th commandment of the Ten Commandments. It's violating the first one. You shall have no other God beside me. And rather than leave us in a rebellious and separated state, God instituted a clear and precise way in which we can approach this holy God. In the Old Testament, we've been looking that God gave us the animal, the animal sacrificial uh, system to atone, to atone, uh, that, that is the means to restore our relationship with him. Atonement was God's way to make reparation amends to him because our sin and the just condemnation against us because of our sin, there's been separation. We've sinned against this God and sin always separates And over and over again, we've been seeing in the Old Testament, we'll see it again today, that you cannot, you cannot approach God in any old way. Even the most holy place was in the center of the temple. There was things that needed to be done before we enter into the presence of a holy God. He is holy, we are sinful, but by his love and by his grace and by his mercy, he revealed to us, he tells us, we don't make it up, we don't come to him, he came to us and said, this is the way you are to approach me. Last week, or two weeks ago, when we first started the series, we saw that all the Old Testament blood sacrifices could never take away sins, that Jesus was the ultimate and better and true sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices. Last week, we saw the Day of Atonement. We looked at that Jesus was the better and the greater substitute. So the atonement, he's he's the greater sacrifice. In the atonement, he's the greater substitute. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone, everyone, everyone in this room, Everyone, to his own way. We've done our own thing, ways to justify our own life. And the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity, sin of us all. Today we're going to look at another angle, another perspective, another motif of the the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus is our Redeemer, and Jesus is our Passover. Passover. That's what we're looking at. Jesus our Redeemer and Jesus as our Passover. So what I want to do this morning, and I, I hope this works. You know when I start that out right away, you should worry. I want to look at two, because we're, I, I, we're not going to do each perspective of the atonement one at a time because it would take a little bit too long. So I'm going to try to shorten it down and combine them together. So what I want to do today is I want to look at two very famous stories, famous incidences in the Old Testament and show us and and look at it together to see that providence of God, the work of God, as he is preparing Israel and as he prepares the world for the Lamb of God who is Jesus who takes away the sins of the world, that Jesus is the true and the better and the greater Passover and the greater and true and better Redeemer. The stories can be found in Genesis 22 and Exodus 12 through 14, if you want to turn there or put your finger in there if you want. It's all about the lamb. And here's the main idea. Let me give you the main idea. The main idea is is of a spotless lamb, the innocent blood offered for the guilty, for our redemption. It is the idea of a spotless lamb, the innocent blood offered for the guilty for our redemption. Now, some of you, maybe you're new here, you're thinking, are right, we talking about blood sacrifices? We're talking about blood. It's kind of offensive. It doesn't really make sense. Good. I'm glad you're here today because I hope as we look at this text and look at this story and we see the context in which it was written in, you'll understand why this furry animal's bloody sacrifice, this lamb that was slain, will give us a better understanding of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who was slain as our Redeemer. That, that's my hope. That's, that's where we're looking at. Now, a Scripture reading, uh, there's two passages of Scripture that I want to look at first before, just, just to read them, uh, put things in context. And that's 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth. And he writes to them, and he says, listen, cleanse out the old leaven, that's sin, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. In other words, you've been washed in the blood. Uh, We're going to talk about expiation in a couple of weeks. He says, for Christ, that's our God, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Paul says, Christ is the Passover lamb that's been sacrificed. The next verse is from Jesus' own lips in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, for even... The Son of Man, the famous, one of the most uh, uh, the title used the most by Jesus, the Son of Man, pointing to Daniel 9, Daniel 7, came, that's him, Jesus, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Right? He didn't come to, to be served, but he came to serve. And what did he come to serve? What did he came to do? He came to give his life. No one takes it from him. He lays it down by his own accord. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Some of you maybe have heard the story, an illustration used when talking about the death of Jesus, about the train and the train over the tracks. And there was a train coming and the bridge was open and the conductor was up there and he sees the train coming and, and his son playing in the gears below. Have anybody ever seen that story heard that story before? Raise your hand, a couple people, okay. And then the, the train conductor, he sees the train coming, all these people on, he sees his boy trapped in the gears and he has to lower the bridge crushing the kid so that the train can go along the bridge over the, over the river and onto safety and how the boy's life was crushed to save the multitude. Well, some of that's true, showing the sacrifice of Christ, but it's not true completely. That picture shows Jesus Unwilling, unknowingly dying for the sins of the world. That's not the Bible. Jesus Christ willingly, knowingly went to Jerusalem and gave up his life. So it's a good story, not complete. Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus came, as it says right here in Mark, not to be served, but to serve and to give. To give his life as a ransom. For many So as we move forward on this, there's four things. We're going to look at this text, or this, this theme, this uh, uh, redemption and Passover through four steps. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to see first, a debt that was owed. Next, a, a dead lamb, a debt that was owed, a dead lamb, a dinner shared, and a dark night. That's where we're going. Dead owed, a dead lamb, a dinner shared, a dark night. The story of the sacrificial lamb, the blood of an innocent victim that redeems, goes way back to Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham. Famous story where Abraham brings his son up to the mountain to be sacrificed, or to, to, you think so, to, but it doesn't happen that way as you know the story. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, the scripture tells us that God comes to Abraham in chapter 22, verse 2, and he says to him, hey, take your son, God tells him, take your son, your only son, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you, okay? God tells Abraham to do that. Every commentator I read says that there's a signal here that the, that the, the, the writer is trying to show us that Abraham's affection for his son became exaltation. His love, St. Augustine would call it, is a disordered love. The problem, according to Augustine, it's not that we don't love. It's that we just don't love God first and primarily, and therefore everything else that we love is disordered out of whack, becomes idols. In Genesis 22, God was not asking Abraham to stop loving his son. God was showing Abraham to realize that his son was becoming the center of his universe. And if anything becomes the center of our universe, no matter if it's a good thing, but it becomes the ultimate thing, the Bible calls it idolatry. Romans says, uh, Romans chapter one, Paul says that we are worshiping creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Right, so it's not that we should sacrifice our children. For some of you think, you know, I got a, I got a little one. I'd like to. No, that's not what they're saying. Okay, but we are to check our hearts. Are we idolizing things, even good things, in our lives? So as the story goes, Abraham goes up. Rises up in the morning, saddles his donkey, takes two of his young men with him, and up he goes with his son. He cuts the wood. He brings the wood for the burnt offering, which is an offering that is a a consuming fire. Goes to the place where God tells him to go. We see Abraham acting in faith, unwavering, unhesitant faith. He doesn't always do that if you read Genesis, uh, but he does that now. And he's got to be thinking on his three-day journey about his son. It had to be a quiet journey, I would imagine. Maybe some ladies can't understand that, but we would just be quiet. And just like contemplating. And for three days, the the son that that God had promised, the, the son that he waited for, and now was delivered through his wife Sarah, God's asking for. So the question would be, why would God ask Abraham to do such a thing? Why would Abraham actually do what God wanted to do at the price of his own son? In other words, why would Abraham think that God was speaking to him, that it wasn't the pepperoni pizza he had ate before he went to bed. Or or maybe the mushroom flashback. I don't know. If you don't know what that means, ask your kids, okay? They'll tell you. Does it mean that whatever God says, I just need to do it if it's prompted? I mean, even if it's crazy? I don't think that's the case. We need to understand the culture. Dr. Keller, author and pastor of Redeemer Church, John, uh, Dr. John Levinson is a professor of Harvard uh, Divinity School and David Dilling from Grace Theological Seminary, three men that have done a lot of research on the culture. And they point out what's very important to understand this story is that the culture in that day is not like our culture uh, of, of our individualistic culture. Our culture is our dreams, our hopes are based on your own personal stories, your own personal um, successes your own personal fulfillment your own personal prosperity you try to do what's right for you i think sometimes we actually go too far we think we're not connected to anybody or even connected to our family you know i'm not like drunk you know drunk uncle bob over there you know give me another beer you're like you're more like him than you want to admit right but back then it was all about the family and i don't mean just brothers and sisters in that day when this was written in abraham's time it was about the clan it was about the tribe It was about the whole family, the extended family. And when you made decisions as the head of the house, you made decisions based on the entire family, not upon your own personal success stories. You were were the one that would carry on the family name, the family prosperity. And in that culture, the firstborn was the primary one to inherit the land, to continue the prosperity, uh, uh, to continue the wealth of the family. He was held responsible in that community to, to represent his, his clan, his family. He was the hope. The firstborn was the hope of the continued lineage of the family. So the summons of Abraham to Abraham to give up his firstborn son would be like, like a professional pianist or a, or a surgeon giving up their hands. The, the, this firstborn is the personification of the family. You have to understand, I know it's hard, because you don't make decisions based on your cousins. But in that day, it was the family. It was the land. It was, it was, it was much more familial than, than it is today. In fact, if, in that day, if you divided your family, if you divided your wealth, and you kept dividing it as the children, grandchildren, you'd have nothing left. So the firstborn almost got everything as a benefactor. And notice in chapter 22 of, of Genesis, verse 5, he doesn't tell, God doesn't tell Abraham, go murder your son. He wants him to offer him up as a sacrifice, as, as a worship To God. Now to us that sounds crazy. I understand that. But not to Abraham. He understood the meaning of the firstborn within the familial culture. What God has said over and over and over in the Old Testament, which Abraham understood, is that the firstborn, this representative, this familial representative, belongs to God. Exodus 22, verse 28. You shall not delay. To offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses, the firstborns of your sons, you shall be given to me, God's saying. They belong to me. And God talks about in Numbers, in, in Numbers 3 and Numbers 18, that the firstborn belongs to him and must be redeemed with a substitute. Numbers 18 says, everything that opens the womb of all the flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be the priest's. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and their redemption price at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix it at five shekels in silver. Again, Exodus 34, all the firstborns of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear me empty-handed. So God is making very clear that the life of the firstborn is forfeited unless it is redeemed. It belongs to God. We need to redeem it with the sacrifice. There has to be payment. They understood it back then. Try to wrap your head around their culture. So when God said to Abraham, you ought to bring your firstborn, you ought to sacrifice and worship your firstborn, God was saying that there was a price, a debt of sin that every family owed. And although we can't understand this completely, Abraham knew it. If God had told Abraham to kill his slaves, to kill his nephew, to kill a daughter any other son he would have said that that's a demon talking but because it was his firstborn he knew that God is a God of justice he knew that he failed to live according to God's law he knew that all of us must must face God's good and right justice all of mankind we're all in the same boat we' all live centered lives, self-centered lives, rebellion towards God, and God cannot and will not overlook sin. There's a debt that needs to be paid. So when God told the Israelites that the, first belong, the firstborn belonged to him unless ransomed, he was saying in the most glowing way, in that day, in that culture, that every family on earth owes a debt of eternal justice to a holy God and the debt of their sin. Abraham knew it. He heard the painful cry, the, not painful cry, but the, but, the, but, but the painful command of God. He was calling in, Abraham, we're calling in the debt you owe me. We're calling in the debt you owe me. So not only give up your idols, but pay the debt that he knew he owed. And off Abraham went. In the sacrificial system it was all about the restitution of sin, the payment for sin. And by doing so, by sacrifice, that allowed the worshiper to approach a holy God. I, I, I think I'm going to say this every week. I just, just so if you're new here, you, you, you understand. Leviticus chapter 17 gives us the reason, gives us a very important verse in understanding of why blood sacrifices are needed to approach a holy God. This is what it says. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I, God, I give it to you on the altar sacrifice to make atonement for your souls to to reconcile this broken relationship because of sin for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life so blood makes atonement not only because the life of the creature is in the blood but it is the bloodshed is the life ending that makes atonement for sin blood was required in exchange for the life of the worshiper it was life in the blood poured out in death a symbolic expression of the life of the innocent given for the life of the guilty. There was an exchange. You lost your life. It should have been me. Blood was shed. It should have been mine. And I give you that life and that blood to make atonement. Then you can approach me, a holy God. Some of you are thinking, really? We, really, we, we owe a debt to God? That, that seems a little foreign. I mean, what, why, why is this debt? Think about it for a minute. Jesus taught us, and many of you know this prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. The word debtors, ophilemai, in the Greek, comes from the root word ophilio, which means to owe a debt, to, to, to uh, have trespass, a sin requiring reparation, making amends, a restitution, something that needs to be paid. Listen, even in our society, even in our culture, you know it and I know it. When you violate the law, you pay the debt to society, to the state, to the government, to those in which you sin against. When you finish your time, the debt is paid in full, you are freed and you are released to go. There's a debt owed to society. Even emotionally, when someone harms you and really harms you, there's a sense a debt. That is owed to you. You can, you can make the perpetrator suffer and pay you back. Even if it's trashing them. Even if it's speaking evil against them. Even if it's, you know, ruining their reputation. Beating them up in your mind over and over what you'd like to do. And if the offender suffers, you feel like a satisfaction. There's a releasing of debt. And the Bible says if you live that way, it'll be chaos in your life. Well, you can forgive them. When they harmed you, you could forgive them. In that case, we said last week, forgiveness is always substitutionary. There's a suffering and there's a releasing of the debt that they owe you. And when you refrain from lashing out, when you refrain from beating them up in your mind, when you refrain and you feel pain, you feel agony, there is suffering. You let go of of the suffering and the consolation of inflicting harm of them. You let it go. You absorb the debt. You take it not out on them, but you take it out on yourself. You, you, You absorb what they have done and it hurts but it doesn't go into thin air if you have truly forgiven somebody who has truly harmed you deeply you know what i'm talking about even on an economic level there's a debt for wrongdoing you rob me you steal from me you owe me you owe me. i could forgive you and absorb the debt or you could pay the debt and pay me back Jesus talked about it in Matthew 18 about a king who grabbed one of his servants one of his slaves and said you owe me millions of dollars and the slaves I can't pay you And the king what he absorbed the debt He didn't get the money back he released them from the debt he owed him that same slave grabbed another slave who owed him a couple of dollars Jesus showing the contrast of how much we sin against God we have If you remember the story he would not forgive him he would not he said you owe me my money When the king found out, he said, how dare you? I have forgiven you. I have released you of the debt that you owe me. And you would not release him of the debt he owed you. Away into the prison you go. Jesus says, you must do the same. You must forgive the debt. So if that's true, socially, emotionally, economically, if that's true, and you know it is, how much more is it true for the creator God who created us in his image and likeness, to bear his image, to represent him well, to be in intimate relationship with him, and yet we, what, trample on one another? We stick our middle finger in his face and say, well, I'll do what I want, when I want, and how I want. Abraham knew that at the end of the day, that he owed God a debt, and that debt was being called in. So up to the mountain, Abraham went. The debt owed the problem of debt as we look at the dead lamb is also clearly seen in the famous story of the Passover the story of the book of Exodus chapters 11 through 13 in Exodus it's, it's the Passover story it's this wonderful beautiful story on how Israel is called out of Egypt and it's really the, the place in Israel's history where they are, they are seen in, as a nation as a called out of Egypt if you remember the story they were in Egypt they were they were slaves 400 years, God finally raises up Moses to lead them out of Egypt. God, you know, parts the Red Sea and and Israelites go through and the army gets crushed and they're redeemed and they're liberated and they're off to the land of Cana of promise. But before they go, if you remember the story, you know there were how many plagues? 10 plagues, right? In other words, each plague is like, uh, Pharaoh, I'm not playing. You better let my people go. Plague one all the way through. But on the 10th plague, God told his people and he warned his people that he was going to come and he was going to pass through the land of Egypt at night. And what he was going to do is he was going to strike down the firstborn, both man and beast, because God was sending judgment upon the sinful and rebellious people of Egypt. I've had enough. I keep telling them they won't listen. Judgment will come. Notice again, it was the firstborn, the personification of the family. But he tells the Israelites that they should sacrifice a spotless lamb at twilight and and take some of the blood and put it over the doorsteps or doorposts and, and the lintels of the houses. And the firstborn, their firstborn will be spared. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt, small g, I will execute judgment, I am the Lord. The blood that sacrificial animal, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So what did they do? Every Israelite in their home did what was told. They killed the lamb, they sprinkled the blood by faith over the door frames of the houses. Midnight, God comes, strikes the firstborn, but passes over, over, passes over the houses that were, excuse me, that, that the sacrificed lamb's blood was marked. This became a permanent memorial. But Notice what God does not tell Moses. That's what I want you to see this morning. What does God not tell Moses? God does not tell Moses, listen, when I come down and execute judgment in the land at midnight, don't worry about it. All the Egyptians firstborn are going to be killed, but you, the Israelites, my people, are spared. I mean, God knows whose house is whose, right? He wasn't like, hmm, whose house is that? I'm not really sure who lives there. why because when the justice of god comes down it comes down on everyone we're all sinners we're all tainted by sin we're all in debt to god there is no one righteous no not one in fact moses tells them stay in the house don't come out till it's over because if you come out you're not going back in unless you're dragged back in there's no such thing as the good guys and the bad guys. There's no such thing for those who find God's favor because we pray hard, read our Bible, go to church, or somehow live some moral excellent way, or find favor because of our pedigree. God is perfectly clear in the scripture that we are all part of this world who makes, that makes it corrupted and broken. It's a broken place. So what's happening in the Passover in the Exodus account is God is saying when justice comes down, it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter where you are in the social ladder of your community, whether you try hard, pray hard, read hard, it doesn't matter because we all owe a debt because of our sin. And in that night when God's justice came down, there was two things, either a dead son or a dead lamb. Either a dead son or a dead lamb, one or the other. If you have taken shelter under the redeeming, substitutionary blood of the lamb, there was hope. Think about this. Israel was the one in bondage. Israel was the one in slavery. Israel was the one that was oppressed. Israel was the one that was beaten. Israel was the one that was captive, held captive. But even they owed a debt unless they hid under the shelter of the blood of the lamb on the Passover, they would have died. That's why in Exodus and other places in Scripture, when in the stories retold, uh, it talks about the deliverance, uh, spoken about a redemption, that they would redeem from the land of Egypt. Um, Exodus chapter 6 says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you. With an outstretched arm. With great acts of judgment. So there's a debt owed. And there's a dead lamb. And now we'll look at the dinner shared. Many years later. After the Passover. On the night which Jesus would be betrayed. Jesus grabbed his disciples and said. Listen we need to go to the upper room. Prepare for me the meal of Passover. They were commanded every Jew. Every year. To celebrate the Passover. Was it just a dinner? It was the Passover dinner. That night. When Israel would be reminded of their exodus, of the, of the deliverance from Egypt, their redemption from slavery, Jesus now is sharing that meal with his disciples. The way the meal worked is that the head of the, of the, of the family, in this case it would be Jesus, he would begin the Passover celebration with a blessing, uh, both upon the festival and the time and, and also on the first cup of wine. And after the first cup of wine was drunk, they would wash themselves. This was a ceremonial cleaning. And it was symbolic that they they could not come into God any old way. They needed to be a washing. They had to deal with personal cleansing, sin in their life. They wanted to make sure there was nothing in them that would would violate them, that would be, uh, uh, you know, how could they celebrate their deliverance while entertaining their sin when they know their redemption was from sin ultimately. It was this time when the washing after the first cup of wine that many people believe that Jesus got up from the table it wasn't just washing the hands. He got down, took off his outer garment, and washed the feet of his disciples. See how beautiful that would be. After the washing, the meal was brought in. The meal of the Passover was, was unleavened bread, bitter herbs, stewed fruit, greens, and a roasted lamb. The bitter herbs was, was to remind them of their bitterness in their slavery in Egypt. The roasted lamb, of course, reminded of that God passed over them because of the blood of the lamb that was slain and the blood poured over their doorstep. And the oldest son in the Passover celebration was then prompted by the father that night to, to say, hey, why is this night any different, dad? Every year the son would say the same thing. He knew what the answer was. At that point, the head of the table the, 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 would be Jesus, would tell the story of the Passover. This was part of their celebration, how they would praise God and, and, and offer worship to God because of his deliverance from Egypt. And then the second wine cup was drunk. The head of the house then took the unleavened bread, blessed it and broke it after the second cup and distributed it to others who ate it, dipping it in the bitter herbs. At this point, they would sing songs. They would have the meal. They would con- sing more songs, as you read in the, the gospel accounts. They would f- sing a final song that ended Passover. But this night... This night with Jesus, sharing a meal was different than all the other nights. When Jesus got up and blessed the elements and explained the symbolism of the elements and the various aspects of their captivity and their slavery in Jesus, he said things that they have never heard before in all the lives they've celebrated for the Passover. Jesus took some of the unleavened bread, broke it, and passed it as they dipped it into the dish of bitter herbs, and he would normally say, this is the bread Of misery which our fathers ate in the land of egypt all you are hungry come and eat all you are needy come Keep the passover But jesus shows them the bread and says take eat This is my body This is the bread of my misery This is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my suffering because I am the true passover I am the ultimate firstborn sacrifice. I am going to lead the ultimate exodus, the ultimate deliverance, not from the tyranny and the political oppression, but from sin and bondage. And just like this meal commemorates God's deliverance, the night before God redeemed them from slavery, from Pharaoh and and the slavery they were in, Jesus says this night, this is the night before God is going to redeem us from sin, Satan and death itself. The world will be delivered Jesus is pointing to through him. I am the ultimate Moses. I am the I am the I am leading the ultimate Exodus. What Jesus is doing in this dinner that he's sharing is making it very clear that all other sacrifices, all other deliverances from their bondage was pointing to Jesus. His death is the pinnacle of all those stories. Points to all those show stories. Do you know what's so interesting about the account? If you read the four gospel accounts of the Last Supper, if you read all them, you'll see the bread was there, you'll see the bowl that they were dipping in, you'll see the wines all spoken about. But you know what's not mentioned in any one of the four accounts of the gospel? A Passover lamb that they were eating. Now, whether there was one or not, I guess there could be an argument. But I think that the gospel writers left it out. There was no mention of the lamb because the lamb of God was at the table. Goats and sheep could never take away sin. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus was the ultimate deliverer. That's why when, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold, grasp, understand, behold, hold on to, lean on, trust in the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Mark's Gospel, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see, the, do you see that now? Ransom is paying the debt. The word ransom is the word lutron in the Greek, and it was has to be used making a payment to get out of jail, to get out of slavery, uh, someone being released, and Jesus says, I'm that ransom. I'm the one who paid the debt. He's saying what we cannot pay, he does freely by his grace. By his life, we get freedom. He says, but to, For the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom, as a ransom for many. The word for is an exchange. In other words, what Jesus is saying, I am the Passover. I have given my life in exchange for your life. I died to death, you should have died. And I died in your place. Paul puts it this way. Ephesians 1. In Jesus we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace. Understand this family. Listen. The ransom is the price that must be paid to God for our debt. But the question is. How could God. Or how could man. Pay God. How could we as a people. What could sinners. Give to God. In fact, Psalm 49 says that man could never atone for your own sins. You just can't do it. We're all sinners. But Jesus is both God and man. He alone then, living a perfect life, can pay the debt that you know you owe. Through his ransomed life, through his sinless life, his ransom and his substitutionary death. Jesus is the spotless passive love of the lamb. He paid the ultimate price for our sin. Now let me bring this back around and finish up with the night. Mark chapter 15. Okay, now I want to wrap this up. I want you to follow me. A couple more minutes and we're done. Listen. As Abraham, all right? So there's a debt owed, right? There, there, there's, there's a debt owed. There is a... Um, uh, dinner that's being shared, a Passover, a, a, a substitution. Jesus is the Passover. Now watch this. As Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son, he had to be thinking, all right, there's a debt. I'm going up to the mountain. I am going to, to th- God's calling in this debt, but there's a problem, Lord. You said that, there was going to be a promise, and the promise was that you would give me a son. He would be the blessing to the world. Through him, the lineage, the Christ, the Messiah would come, and now you're asking me to do this. You're calling in a debt. You're a just God, but you kept the promise to me by grace. How are you going to be just God, and how are you going to keep your promises? You know how the story goes. He goes up there. He lays Isaac out, and God tells him, stop, and he provides a ram as a substitution in the place of his son. And he sacrifices as an atoning sacrifice for his sin because God was still calling Abraham up to the mountain to pay the price. And he allowed Abraham to substitute. Instead of his son, he was to substitute a ram. But a furry animal, really? Will that pay our debt? Will that cover us? Does blood of the lamb really and finally protect the Israelites from the judgment of God? No. No. Mark chapter 15, says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land, over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani," which means my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Folks, it was noon. It was 12 o'clock and it was dark. Scotos in the Greek, total blackness. Couldn't see your hands in front of your eyes. It wasn't a solar eclipse. Oh, it was a solar eclipse. It was the Passover. It was a full moon. It was a full moon. It was a supernatural work of God to blacken the sky, the place where Jesus was crucified. Why? The darkness that shrouded the cross and the land where Jesus crucified was clearly depicting to us and to the world that judgment had come down to earth. Sin and evil and rebellion was dealt with. Remember, during the Exodus, during the 10 plagues, you know what the ninth plague was? Darkness over the land. Like, get ready. And the 10th plague was justice, come down to earth, firstborn, done. The reason Abraham did not have to give up his son is because Jesus, God, the Father, gave up the firstborn. His name is Jesus. That's the reason. The darkness was a picture of our judgment. At midnight, God broke into history in the Passover And judgment came down, and now here on the cross in the middle of the day, in the middle of this black, dark place, God executes judgment, this time on the firstborn son. Jesus Christ bears our penalty, dies in our place, takes the punishment we deserve paying that debt that we all owe on himself on the cross in darkness as judgment came upon him. He cries out. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Of all the things that happened to Jesus, emotionally, they rejected him, they kicked him to the curb, physically, they beat him, doesn't compare to the separation from him and his father. Sin always separates. And the excruciating pain of the cross, even the physical excruciating torture does not compare to when the father turned his face in a moment while Jesus bore our sin and paid our penalty. And he cries out, "Why, or well, why have you forsaken me?" It was a God sent judgment that shrouded the cross as the Son of God became our Passover and our Redeemer. That's why did Moses say, "Stay in the house; can't come out." Everyone owes a debt. Jesus comes and removes it. He dies in our place. The story of Abraham says there's a debt that is owed by everyone; no one exempt. No one is exempt. The story of Moses says that there can be a substitute. God has provided a way to approach him to, to be forgiven, to be reconciled through a substitute who pays the debt. The story of Jesus, that he is that substitute. He is that redeemer. He is the one who shed his blood for our forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sin. He paid the debt. Ephesians chapter five. Who'd he pay his debt to? It says right here. Walk in love as Christ loved us and what? gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to who? God. God becomes the just and the justifier. His holiness, his righteousness is upheld and his love and his mercy is experienced all through the cross of Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer. He is our Passover. Don't let your cultural blinders blind you from the fact and reality that all of us owe a debt. You know it. Who's going to pay that debt? Will you take shelter under the lamb? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now let me tell you a little story. It's a two-minute story. The band can come up. There's a story about a little boy. The band can come on up. A story about a little boy. Now listen to this story. He... Love to fly kites. He liked to fly kites. I used to fly kites when I was a kid. He loved to fly kites, and one day he decided i 'm going to make my own kite and he got some wood together. he whittled the wood down, he made the little insides of of the of the kite he got some a material and he made the material for it he made it, he, he carved it, he worked it and, and he loved his kite, he even made the tail to the kite himself and one day it was windy out he said this is a great day, I'm going to go fly my kite he goes to the schoolyard and, and the wind is blowing, he, wrote, you know, he opens up the kite and the kite begins to take off and the wind gusts become you know, heavier and heavier and heavier and finally the string breaks and the kite as he watches in amazement and in terror as the kite and the wind just takes the kite away crushed several weeks later he's in town he looks in a window and right there in a the porn shop he sees his kite he runs in and he says to the owner listen that, that's my kite I, I made that kite it belongs to me and the guy said look I don't know who you are little boy but I'll tell you what if you want that kite I bought it from a stranger if you want it 20 bucks the boy left the shop began to ask around the neighborhood can he work and he began to work And he raised the $20. He went back to that pawn shop, put the $20 down, and he bought the kite back. And he cradled it, and as he's walking down the street, you could hear him say, Little kite, this is amazing. I made you. You belong to me. But I lost you. But now I bought you back again. You you are twice mine. Listen, we are twice Christ's. God made us, shaped us, created us. We're made in his image and likeness. He loved us. He cared for us. But we sinned against God. We rebelled against him. We drifted away. Sin always separates. And now Jesus comes and he buys us back. He delivers us from sin. He delivers us from the power of sin, from the presence of, of, of being separated from God. He pays that price. He becomes a sacrifice. He's our redeemer. He paid the price. Do you trust him? Do you worship him? Do you resting in him? If that were true, we would all recognize we're not any better than anybody else, just like the Israelites. All of us owe a debt. Let that humble us. If you've never trusted in Christ, today's the day. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper with the bread that was broken as his body, the blood that was shed is in the cup of juice, and we're gonna celebrate What the band's going to do, the band's going to play. And right there in your heart, you're going to get right with God. You're going to confess your sins. You know there's a debt that's owed. And and we're going to ask you to confess it quietly in your seat. And then repent of your sins. I mean, turn from your sins. And then come and celebrate. Because it's about celebration. It's about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. He died for our sin. He rose from the grave. He's got us covered. Do you trust him? Do you love him? If you never trusted him, today's the day. Lead Yield your life to Christ. Give your life to Jesus. Trust in his, his atonement work for you. Trust in the cross and worship him as the one true God and then come and take communion. If you're not a Christian, you're here. We love you. We're glad you're here. Just sit back and listen to the music. We'd love to talk to you afterwards. It's a communal meal for the family of God. Maybe it is the first day. I don't know. God knows. Let's pray. Father, you, for centuries, you showed us that we can't approach you. You're a holy God. We are not holy. And Father, you have given us pictures and symbols and sacrifices that point to the reality, the, the, the spiritual reality of Jesus Christ, our good God and Savior, our Passover lamb, our redeemer, our rescuer. And Father, as we just worship you this morning, as we take up the Lord's Supper, we pray your blessing on it. We pray, Father God, that together as a family, we will recognize your great love for us, that we are called by you, and cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ and brought into a right relationship with you. So, Father, bless our confessions, our repentance, our celebration of the broken body and the shed blood. In Jesus' good name, amen.